Hey guys, welcome to episode 109 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we want to start off the show the way we always do. I feel like it's like a record on repeat. Just saying thank you to all of our listeners for everything that they always do for us. We appreciate you all so much because really without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. (laughs) We would just be two weirdos with a microphone talking. (laughs) That would be it. And I know we haven't done this in a while, so please bear with us while we do. Before we get started with this episode, I just wanted to remind you that there are many ways that you could help our podcast out. You could do a number of things. Just one, whatever you're cool with. We could start slow with this relationship. It doesn't, <laughs> we don't have to jump into it. But you could tell a friend about us. That would help us big time. Or you could leave a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. And, you know, you could also go to those like true crime forums out there. And if you just mention us, that would be fantastic. You could also join our Patreon page and enjoy two extra episodes a month and ad free episodes that we release here on our regular feed. We will be thanking our new patrons at the end of this episode, as we always do. And finally, if you would like some merch, whether it's true crime couple merch or just true crime merch in general, you can check out the show notes or our Instagram page for the link. Okay, so I think I I got everything there. Yes, I think we're good now. (laughs) I always forget something, but I, I think I got it. You ready? Always. In the winter of 1998, there did not seem to be a more idyllic family than the Trovers in Gillette, Wyoming. But in early December of that year, the perfection would come to a screeching halt when the family was brutally attacked in their own home. The family had just returned from a night out at a local bar and grill and was preparing for bed when the power to their house was cut and the nightmare began. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another. Are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Gillette, Wyoming is known for many things. Since it was founded in 1891, it has experienced two major population booms, once in the 1970s and again in the mid-2000s. Each time, the population of this small city grew by almost half. Both of these events occurred because of the area's wealth in fossil fuel resources and the country's growing reliance on them. In 1974, Dr. L. Dean Kors rushed to Gillette to study the social and emotional impact of the rapid population growth on the town. Dr. Kors presented his study entitled Social Consequences of Boom Growth in Wyoming at the annual meeting of the Rocky Mountain American Association for the advancement of science. He made the argument that rapid population growth created disruptions in society and usually led to increased crime rates, uh, degrading mental health, and the weakening of social and community bonds, which accounted for the rise in crime rates, domestic violence, and the occurrence of divorce rates to increase. So this negative change in boom towns was coined the Gillette syndrome. That's pretty funny. I kind of agree with the scientists, though, because you do find, like, in history, I mean, you're the history teacher, 
But you do find in history that like those kind of towns that kind of pick up in popularity and, and growth, that happened when there was gold rushes. And there was like all these little towns that sprouted up. And as quickly as they grew, they also quickly fell as well. And you had crime and, and, and you know murder and all that other stuff in those towns as well. So it's funny how we went from gold, you know, we're mining gold, coal, and now we're here with the oil. So it's interesting. Yeah, well, that's, the, that's what is important to us now. Yeah. Um, I think that there's two sides to this because there are people that do argue the Gillette syndrome and say that, of course, crime rates, divorce rates are going to rise when a population rises, just, you know, statistically. So there are two arguments to that. But I think it is really interesting that the city in which our crime takes place has a syndrome named after it where crime rates increase and people are just generally seem to be more unhappy. I mean, it is interesting. I've never even heard of that before. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you could, you're taking a small town and you're all of a sudden making it a small city. So it is going to lead to people being unhappy. There's like a hustle and bustle that there never was before. Added pressures, added population. Might be because there's also such an increase so rapidly, there might not be like, um, police enough to enforce or uh, like you know just things like that you know to have to have control of a town yeah i think you would say i could get away with a little bit more as because the police force didn't grow with the population as quickly yeah. i see what you're saying you know it's like you have one sheriff for like a small town and then all of a sudden overnight you have you need like a the police department yep. you know so just around the time of the city's second boom our story begins Enter the antithesis of the Gillette syndrome, the Trover family. Cheryl and John Trover, in 1998, had been married for 14 years. Their friends described them as the couple that still held hands and kissed each other lovingly in public. Cheryl was 38 years old and a math teacher at Campbell County High School. She was loved by her neighbors, co-workers, and students. John Trover worked within the local coal industry as an accountant. He, too, was loved by friends, neighbors, and co-workers. Together, the couple had the perfect nuclear family. A daughter named Tori, who was 13, and a son named Jackson, who was 11. John, who was 43 years old, had been married briefly before he had met Cheryl. From that marriage, he had an 18-year-old daughter named Brooklyn. He had been awarded custody when he divorced his first wife. So Brooklyn lived with the Trovers, and she always had since John was dating Cheryl. Oh, okay. So they really always explained themselves as having three children. And at the time of this event, Brooklyn was away at school because she was 18 years old. So she was not home for this. Okay, you mean she was in college? Yeah. Okay. So neighbors of the couple said that Cheryl seemed to have it all together. She was great at her job. She was in excellent physical shape. And she was always going above and beyond for her kids at school. She was a super mom. Again, the same thing could be said about John. He was often seen in the yard of his house playing with his children or taking them to and from their sports practices. And... Really, it seems like they're like the Cleaver family. Like, you can't get any more perfect than that. (laughs) That's actually funny. 
On the night of December 4th, the couple went out with friends to Humphrey's Bar and Grill. It was a Friday, and they wanted to let off some steam. The topic of discussion that night was all the crazy things that had been going on in the world of the Trovers. For about a month at that point, calls had been coming in to the Eagle Butte mines. In the mid-1990s, there had been a very large amount of coal mined in the United States, and one of the largest producers of that coal were the mines in Gillette. But there had been a slight stagnation in demand in years to follow. Because of this, and other financial difficulties that the mine was facing at the time, there had been rumors about the company. Now, these rumors ranged from possible layoffs to the whole company having to shut down. No matter what the rumor was, they all involved the financial aspect of the mine, which meant John's department. Now, in reality, all of these rumors were untrue. In fact, the Eagle Bee Mine, as it was called, was never in danger of being shut down. It was one of the most environmentally sound methods of coal extraction in the basin, but that all doesn't matter when people are panicking about losing their jobs. I mean, that is scary, right? I mean, it's your source of income. And if it stops production or the company just decides to close their doors, I mean, where, where does that leave every single employee, right? It's super scary. Right. Especially when you're talking about a mine, because that's a specific skill that you have. So if an entire mine does shut down, it's going to be impossible for those workers to find other jobs. And I could be wrong, but I think like areas like that, it's it's super crucial to have those people employed doing those things for the town to grow and to have everyone stay there, right? Exactly. You're going to have a mass exodus or you're going to have an increased Gillette syndrome thing going down. Right. <laughs> so because people were nervous that they were going to lose their jobs, they got angry. And, you know, it was like a little hostile at the mine. And it's so funny how these rumors start and how they snowball and what they become. And in November of 1998, a month before the attacks of December 4th, John's office began to receive bizarre and threatening phone calls. Uh-oh. Yeah. So John really laughed these threats off, but Cheryl, his wife, obviously took them a little bit more seriously. She was scared by the idea that someone was angry enough with her husband to threaten his life. In these calls, it sounded like the caller was trying to disguise their voice in some way. In each call, John or his secretary would hear varying versions of, you're ruining my life, you're going to pay for this, this is all your fault, I know where you live and you'll be seeing me soon. I mean, that's, those are like, I don't know, they're ambiguous threats, but they're pretty serious. And I think if they were... I think they're implying that they're going to hurt their families. Yeah, I think that that no matter how you view them initially, you have to take them like serious and you have to try to be a little bit more, um, what's the word, well, I don't know, like, I guess proactive really, because if I had a threat like that, regardless of like, if I thought it was stupid or not, I'd still in the back of my mind think I have to do something to protect myself and my family. My family and myself, however you, you know. You at least want a record of it with the police department or the sheriff's well, yeah, office. yeah, 100%. I mean, I think that would be the first thing you do. 
You know, whether or not, and I don't even know if that's enough for the police to even get involved is, hey, listen, I'm getting a phone call, a couple of phone calls threatening my life. Is that enough for you to, you know, I mean, I don't know, maybe they would tap their phones or something, you know? No, that's interesting. I think it could be easily traced um, because these were calls that were happening for the entire month of November and into early December. That's interesting. So I think the police probably should have been called after the first couple of calls. Yeah. But I think that John probably assumed this was someone at the job site and he knew the rumors were false. So he probably just thought, okay, once they realize that's not happening, there's no reason to threaten us. And then I also don't think he wanted to get anyone in trouble. Yeah, I think this would be the the moment that I would consider maybe having a talk, like a work safety talk before and be like hey listen just want to quell any of these rumors that might be going down it's not true stop making scream calls to our office like like i just want to let everyone know that all your jobs are secure and everything's fine don't believe the rumors that way no one's doing this yeah that's like legally confusing though because you can't say all your jobs are secure and then later down the road someone has to be laid off or let go so oh never mind it's hard (laughs) never mind then well, it's different to lay off like one or two people no, it's true. than the entire workforce, you know? Like I come, I used to come from an industry where that was very normal. You could do the best to your abilities and you'd still get laid off. I mean, I've seen people that were better than me get laid off before me, yeah. which, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not the boss, but I would always wonder like what made me stay and not them. So it's like, it's different. It must have been your amazing personality. No, I don't think so. <laughs> So Cheryl was the one who brought these calls up to their friends, who were also concerned about the fact that John never called the police. John knew the company was having troubles, and like I said, he really didn't take anything too seriously because he knew everyone's job would be okay. So he was just saying, once we get past the holidays and everyone knows their job's secure, then the phone calls will probably stop happening. But the phone calls weren't the only strange thing that was going on with the Trover family. Cheryl had told her close friends and neighbors that she had seen a strange man around her house within the past couple of weeks. She feared that the phone calls that John was receiving at work and this mystery man were connected. She described the man to be of average build, wearing coveralls or overalls, whatever, whichever you choose to say, and cowboy boots, and also wire-rimmed glasses. That was her description. Now, she told her neighbors to be on the lookout for this man because not only had she seen him in the neighborhood, but one day in late November, just after Thanksgiving, she was in the kitchen preparing dinner for her family, and she actually saw the man in her backyard. And that when she noticed him, he walked out from behind the house. So that's kind of scary like it's it's one thing to be in the neighborhood because that could be a coincidence but this man was in their backyard i think i mean that's pretty unsettling oh yeah so she definitely told all of her neighbors about this and the police did confirm that after cheryl told her neighbors about this man they did receive several calls from citizens within the area reporting a strange or unknown man in their neighborhood Okay, so this person wasn't just in their pro- on their property. Well, he'd been seen like around their street. 
Okay. But it, it was odd enough for other people to report, so I find that interesting. Yeah. So this person definitely did not belong in that town or, or in that neighborhood. That's scary. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I mean, if I, you know, was in the kitchen or wherever in my house and I just saw some random person in my backyard and we made eye contact and they leave, let's just say, like, I would be like, okay, what's going on here? That's terrifying. Yeah. Because I don't know. What are their intentions? I would call the police. I, I think that that's, that's I the feel scariest like I thing, man. I don't know. I realized in this case that I would call the police for a lot of things. What? Okay. Yeah. Okay. You'd call the police for everything. But no, I've only called 911 twice in my life. Okay. And that's actually a lot. <laughs> is it though? No, I guess. Not. I, don't know. I mean, I've called them once, but that was because we had a fire. No, I called them. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. I guess I just made. You the, made it up. You I never called. The... <laughs> you were there. You, you know what? It was traumatizing. My my. You know, we thought our apartment was going to burn down. I know. I'm like, save the save the podcast equipment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, run. But I think that in that situation. You should, because now not only is this strange man, like she felt like he was watching the house, but now he's on your property. So I think that in conjunction with the phone calls would be very unsettling. Well, if the if the person seen on the property are, is the same person making the phone calls, then in my opinion, that's escalation. Right. But now they're, the police can't determine it because they didn't call the police when the man was seen in the backyard or when the phone calls were made. Well, right. Well, that's that's the mistake being made here. So if this is escalation, which I think it is, if it's the same person, what are they going to do next? They've already gone onto your property. The next, you would think the next move is they're going to try to come inside. Yeah. So that would be alarming to me. A hundred percent. I know it would be alarming to you. Everything's alarming to me. Because I know you do check the closets before bed. Every time. Yeah. But despite the phone calls and creepy man conversations, the Trovers had a great time out on December 4th. They returned home at 10 p.m. and said goodnight to their children, who, in true preteen fashion, didn't go to bed when their parents told them to. While John and Cheryl got ready for bed, the two children continued to horse around, Jackson doing his best to annoy his older sister, Tori. Brooklyn was not home at the time. About an hour into the couple getting home from their night out, the power went out. John Trover was in the master bathroom and Cheryl was in the bedroom. John called out for Cheryl to check the breakers in the basement. She went straight to the kitchen for the flashlight and then to the basement. He continued to prepare for bed, thinking this was a small issue, and obviously... You know, you could still navigate your bedroom because it's your house. You've lived there for years, you know? No, that's true. Now, of course, we don't know, but he must have thought something was odd, right? Because number one, his kids were quiet. So if you know anything about being in a house with kids when the power goes out, they react. Everyone always reacts. Yeah, no, I know know that we do. (laughs) So, I mean, it must have been strange that his kids didn't say anything unless he assumed they were already in bed. But it's kind of impossible he didn't hear them because um, they were horsing around a lot. Now, number two, his wife had been taking a really long time. So he must have felt something was weird. So maybe he was in his bedroom, like just waiting. But a figure is going to appear in the doorway of the master bedroom. 
The man was average in stature. John could not make out who the person was because they were wearing a ski mask. He lifted a pistol and took a shot. It hit him in the arm. Immediately, John Trover, wanting to live and protect his family, lunged at the man in the doorway. What John did not know was that his children had been bound and gagged in Tory's room and his wife had been left incapacitated in the basement. Okay, so this one person has already tied up everyone yeah. and incapacitated the wife. I mean, that's... Okay, that's interesting. I wonder if there's more. Well, that's why I said he must have realized that something was wrong because when Cheryl went down to the basement, which is where the power was cut, he must have immediately attacked her and then went to the children's bedroom. He has a gun and was able to tie them up now don't forget this is probably terrifying for the two children because there's now a man with a gun there and the power's out okay obviously there's more to this but i do find it interesting that one person's able to cut the power make their way into a home even with a gun tie up the children or actually incapacitate the wife and tie up the children well i think they were already in the basement did they cut it or did they just shut the like power off? They just shut the power off. Okay. Because, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you want to cut live cable. No, no. They, <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Okay. So, all right. So, they pull. Okay. I wonder if it's more than one person. Okay. Hmm. So, the fight between the intruder and John went from the master bedroom to the main floor of the house. During the struggle, another shot was fired at the base of John's neck. Um, but the weapon misfired, so it left a wound, but it was superficial, much like the first shot did. Um, the weapon really did misfire both times. If the weapon ha- didn't misfire, John would have been probably dead with the first shot. Wow. Okay. Now, in the kitchen, the intruder found John's six-inch hunting knife and managed to stab him. He then threw him down the basement stairs. And once he got to the bottom, the intruder followed and stabbed him multiple other times. Wow, that's pretty aggressive. The intruder then grabbed Cheryl, who had begun to wake up from her head injury, and raped and beat her in the basement. He grabbed the woman and forced her into the family's pickup truck. He drove the truck out to the southern outskirts of town where he parked the vehicle just off the road down an embankment adjacent to a deep stretch of woods. He took off what he had been wearing. Overalls, cowboy boots. Oh my God. Like the person that she saw outside. Mm -hmm. And he left them in the truck where Cheryl was tied up naked in the front seat. And then to her horror, He set fire to the truck and left the scene. Oh, my God. Now, frantic, Cheryl fought her way out of her restraints. She knew that her husband was dead because she had seen him in the basement, but she had no idea what had happened to her children. Eventually, the flames spread, and she was able to get herself loose before they really like engulfed her, but she did have burns on her back. The door to the truck was stuck, but she was able to kick on it 
with her whole body and she opened the door. Not knowing if the man was around, she chose to run for cover in the woods to the right of the truck. And that was where she stayed for hours, terrified to move. Eventually, she saw two men approach the truck and look inside. It appeared as if they were looking to see if anyone was inside. And shortly after they approached the vehicle, a sheriff's deputy did as well. Someone must have called it in. And that was when Cheryl felt safe enough to exit the woods. I mean, this is crazy because now we're going to like enter the story from the perspective of the deputies who were on that like late night, early morning shift where usually nothing happens, right? They think, okay, this is a vehicle fire. It's a little bit bizarre, but I mean, they encounter one of the wildest scenes that they'll see probably in their entire career because as they were telling these good Samaritans to step away from the truck, which was at that point fully like engulfed in flames, um, the fire department was on the wet its way. They saw a hysterical, naked, clearly beaten woman running towards them from the woods. I mean, that is pretty insane, right? Yeah. Like to see that I, I just can't get over. It's like right. the ending of a horror movie. Yeah. Like, like she found uh, someone to save her. Like, that's crazy. I, I just think that, like, there's so much here. I mean, what lengths to go, right? I mean, we're talking about, like, murder, rape, the whole thing about taking the truck all the way to somewhere that's, like, very desolate, lighting it on yeah. fire. It's like this person, it almost seems like it's professional and personal. Yeah. And I think, you know... They had to have escaped somehow, so maybe, like, you're right, that it could be more than one person. Well, I would think it has to be only because if you're going to drive someone all the way to the edge of town and, and light it on fire or whatever, and then go back, you're not going to leave that scene like that with the children possibly still alive. Yeah. So I, I'm thinking there might have to be. At least two. Maybe. Well... When Cheryl exited the woods, she was hysterical. So really, they couldn't make sense of anything that she was saying. She was filthy, bleeding from her head and various parts of her body. She was also badly burned on her back and arms. There were early signs of contusions all over her. And in between sobs, she managed to get a few words out. The deputies, after calling for an ambulance and backup did their best to calm her down. Finally, she was able to tell them that she had been attacked in her home. Her husband was dead and she needed to get to her children. She needed to know what happened to them and if they were all right. Deputies reported this information and other officers were dispatched to the family home right away. The last place that Cheryl had said she had seen her children was at the house at 10 p.m., and they were in Tori's bedroom. That's when she said goodnight to them. She explained that she was attacked in her home, beaten, uh, being repeatedly kicked with the cowboy boots that the man had been wearing. She had no idea what he looked like uh, because he was wearing a ski mask, but she thought that it might have been the same man that had been coming around their house that she had told her neighbors about, because of what he was wearing. I mean, it is kind of, I mean, could it be coincidence or I don't know. 
That is a little odd, though. Yeah. So she said that he had raped her and then drove her off and set the car on fire, which she was eventually able to escape from. Cheryl is brought from the scene that she was found at to the hospital, so a physical examination and rape kit could be performed. The detectives who were now at the scene hoped that this man, whoever he was, had left DNA evidence of some kind. Meanwhile, other deputies and detectives arrived at the Trover house. They entered immediately and found that there had been a brutal scuffle in the house. Blood was all over the kitchen floor. Things had been knocked around. And there was a blood trail from the kitchen that led directly to the door that led to the basement stairs. And at the base of the stairs was John Trover, dead in his underwear. His body was so bloody that the detectives were unable to initially determine what his injuries were. Like, they didn't know if he had been stabbed or shot. That's how he was, his whole upper body was a mess. Later, a medical examiner would determine that he had superficial bullet wounds to his arm and the base of his neck, and he had been stabbed over 10 times in his throat and upper chest area. Wow. So, I mean, this is violent. It is. While men from the sheriff's department looked over John Trover's body, others worked to search the house for the children. They wouldn't have to look far because they were both in Tori's bedroom on her twin size bed. Alive. Oh, they were alive. They were kept alive. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. They were both gagged and tied to the bed. Their hands were duct taped together and then tied to the upper bedpost with rope, while their feet were tied together with rope and then tied to the bottom bedposts. So there was no way they were getting out. And they were also gagged. The children were taken to the hospital to be checked for any injuries, and then they were then later released to family, as Cheryl was still in the hospital for her injuries and was needed for further questioning. This was a shocking crime to the community. A family threatened, stalked, and then attacked. John Trover was dead. Cheryl had been raped and beaten, and the children had been tied to their beds for hours and had to hear the murder of their father and attack of their mother. To solve this crime, the detectives needed to know everything. So first they wanted to question Cheryl, of course. And they wanted to question the children, but they wanted to give them some time, you know, just to calm down. I mean, their their goal of the police at this point is not to further traumatize the children. So they're giving them some time in here. I mean, that is good, though. So Cheryl recounted the story I just told to you above to the detectives. And from their discussion with her, they really wanted to talk to her neighbors And the people that John worked with. Because, I mean, it seems like this was the person that was threatening them. Yeah, and it also seems very like he was the center of it all. Because if it was just a random attack, it's possible that they all would have been killed. So I'm thinking that it has to be somebody that John knew or or, or just or worked there just because of the fact that he was the only one killed. You could make the argument, though, 
that the wife could have been killed because he did start the fire with her in the car. So maybe he thought that she would die and not get out of her restraints. Right. But you know what's really interesting here is that this is, I mean, the profile of this killer could be that they are also a father, like somebody who was working at the mines, concerned about losing their job and protecting their family because the children weren't touched. Right. And they went to a lot to ensure that they couldn't leave the room. Yeah. Um, so I think you might be right. And I think you're onto something. Um, I just think that he was definitely the target. Yeah. No one else. I think that the the wife was just an afterthought. An afterthought. I don't know. It's still pretty bad, though. Yeah, it is. So the neighbors also told stories about a strange man being in the neighborhood, but didn't recall him wearing overalls or cowboy boots. They also told police that they should really talk to John and Susan Riley. They were the closest with the Trovers. Not only were they neighbors, but John Riley worked with Cheryl. In fact, he was her boss and served as the principal of Campbell County High School. When they tried to contact John and Susan Riley, they learned that the couple was out of town. Susan had accompanied her husband to a conference that began on December 3rd, so this couple was not home at the time of the attack. Detectives spoke with more neighbors and co-workers of Cheryl and John, and they found out something very interesting. There was trouble in paradise, and that, you know, working in a high school is a lot like being in one. <laughs> I know that from experience. Everyone knows everything, and there are zero secrets. Math teacher Cheryl Trover and Principal John Riley were having an affair. No way. Yes. Okay. In fact, they've been having an affair for four years. And it was like the worst kept secret in the high school. That's a really long time. <laughs> yeah, that's a really long time. Wow. Okay. So now, more than ever, detectives wanted to talk to Riley and they wanted to search his home because now this is someone with motive. Okay, this is great. My head's spinning right now. I'm thinking, I'm, I'm trying to piece this together. And, you know, like we know from our last episode, someone could quite easily be at a conference and commit a murder. Very true. So on the 6th of December the Rileys returned to their home. Immediately, they were greeted by law enforcement. John Riley had been shocked to hear about the attack on the Trover family. He did admit to detectives that he had been having an affair when confronted about his relationship with Cheryl. He revealed that he wanted the relationship to become official. He planned on divorcing his wife and wanted Cheryl to do the same with her husband. Riley revealed that Cheryl was hesitant and didn't want to make that jump just yet. So as Riley was talking to detectives, his home was being searched. So like, did he want to get John out of the way to make up Cheryl's mind for her? That could be. That could be. I want to know how far the conference is from where they are. Because that would determine whether or not he's capable of actually being involved. Right. Well, in a gun case close to the front door, they found a gun. The one they had been looking for. 
the one that had been used in the attack on John Trover. Now, it was easy for them to find the gun because they knew that it had misfired and um, the wrong size bullet was placed within the weapon. His gun? Yeah. Okay. The detectives told Riley that they were going to arrest him and take him down to the station. He asked if before he left, he could make a phone call. Now, that's something that's like, uh, I don't know if police should let him do. But that's interesting about the wrong bullet being placed in the weapon. Because if it's his gun, shouldn't he know what ammunition goes inside of it? I mean, that's a good point. I mean, he could have accidentally bought the wrong ammunition depending on like maybe he had multiple guns and he bought multiple ammunition i don't know like maybe his wife used his gun maybe or somebody else maybe someone stole it okay but that is interesting though that the wrong ammunition was used because if the wrong ammunition was put in the gun that was fired that would make that would make sense that the husband that got you know the husband that got shot that it didn't the um the that first shot didn't like kill him yeah because if if there's if the wrong if the wrong bullet size is in there right when the hammer when the hammer hits it or whatever kind of gun was used whatever it's when the pin's fired it's going to get lodged in there and then if you go to do it again it's kind of like the scenario with that uh, the crow, the movie, the guy that died on set. Yes. There's a bullet lodged inside. The force of another bullet would force that bullet finally through the chamber, right? Right. But it would lose. It would probably lose velocity, so it wouldn't. Well, be that as was why the penetrating the, the wound on his neck was the way it was. Okay, so that would make sense, actually. Yeah. Like I'm sure it would. I mean, I don't know. It could have. It, maybe it did penetrate. I don't know. But that would explain why it, it didn't have that velocity. The way it happened was like there was a struggle and it was like the two men were facing each other. So the killer's right hand was behind John Trover and he tried to fire, but it like grazed the back of his neck. But it was still a misfired shot. So it would have caused more damage if it had been done regularly that makes sense that's really by the way that's really dangerous yeah to like put the wrong ammunition in the gun please no one ever do that yeah <laughs> please don't murder anyone either well, yeah of course disclaimer that goes without saying yeah so john riley is being confronted with this he knows he's being accused of being the one who attacked the trover family killed john trover tied up the children raped and beat cheryl trover so he says can i make a phone call they assume he's going to call his lawyer because Jesus. And they allow the principal, the 13-year principal of their local high school, that grace. Small town benefits. Correct. That's what that is. But he did not call a lawyer. He knew where Cheryl Trover was staying. And he called that house. No. Wait. Sorry. Oh, no. Uh, that, no, no. Okay. No, I'm going to let you continue. I'm sorry. Because that's weird. Why would he do that? How would he know where she is? Well, after Cheryl was released from the hospital, she went to stay with a close friend because she didn't want to return to that house. And 
he knew that she was there okay. because she had contacted him. Why do I feel like there's like this plot happening? Okay, go ahead. As John Riley stood with the receiver in his hand, he could not believe what was happening. Long before the affair had started with Cheryl, the Rileys and the Trovers, as good neighbors, usually do exchange house keys in case either ever needs it. And he knew what had happened. The detectives could only hear the conversation on Riley's end. And when they did, they rushed to end the call as quickly as possible. And he had only been able to ask one question. What did you do? So, wait. So it's the wife now? It's his wife. No, he was on the phone with Cheryl Trover. Okay, this has got me... uh, Okay, I like this. Okay, continue. The interview with John Riley at the station confirmed what the detectives already suspected. Cheryl Trover was responsible for the death of her husband. Now, I know many of you, including you, John, are thinking she hired someone to pretend to attack her and her family and really kill her husband in the process. But that's not what happened here. Cheryl's calculation in this crime, in my opinion, was worse than what had been done in the killer of our previous episode. Cheryl kept up a happy facade while carrying on an affair with her neighbor and boss for four years. Think about that deception. The only person that suspected that something had been going on was Susan Riley. And that was because her husband gave the affair away by becoming emotionally and physically distant to her while staring a little too long at their neighbor during get-togethers. Once, Susan even mentioned it to John Trover, but he laughed it off, saying that his wife would never do anything like that. Cheryl had told John Riley that she would love to be with him, but her greatest fear was losing her children. To her, this was a reality if she divorced John. She told Riley that she had been dating him while he had gone through his first divorce, and he stopped at nothing to gain custody of his daughter, Brooklyn. She knew that he would try and do the same with the two children they shared, and the affair would be his ammunition. But she did want out. Detectives theorized that Cheryl had been planning this murder for about six months before it happened. Oh my god. This is crazy. But now it makes sense. Okay, it makes sense though that she made those things sound like everything that happened were really bad. And she probably planned her own burning in the car. Like she drove out probably there to make it look like someone took her there. Right? So now that's her alibi that she was bound and and and, and, uh, and raped and beaten and then the car was set on fire. That's pretty crazy. Whoa. And then she probably burnt all the evidence in the car. Because she just so happened to get out of it. Am I right? Yeah, you're right. Oh my Detective God. Detective John. No way, man. 
But I, but I'm still confused about the other stuff though. Like, well, I'm okay. gonna explain it all. Okay. I will wrap this up with a nice bow for you all. All right. She knew about the financial difficulties that the mine her husband was working at was having because, well, she's married to the accountant. So she began placing phone calls to the offices of the mine and specifically her husband and his secretary, threatening them with violence. So not only was she calling the accounting office, but she was calling other offices to like support the theory that these threatening phone calls were coming into all of the offices in the mine. Are you kidding me? No. And then she probably lied about the person in her backyard and then told her neighbors that there was somebody stalking the neighborhood. Correct. She fabricated the story of the strange man being in the neighborhood and being on her property watching her within the house. She also planted this seed within the minds of her neighbors who took this idea and ran with it. And they called the police themselves when they saw someone who was strange. This woman is like uh, the woman from Gone Girl. Yeah. Like she's got like all these things like yep. set up, ready to go. Like her alibi's covered. Everything's like good to go almost. It's terrifying. That's crazy. So on the night of December 4th, she herself went down to the basement and turned the power off to the house. While in the basement, she changed into the clothes that she had down there. Big, baggy clothing, overalls, cowboy boots, and a ski mask. You know what? Even that clothing is definitely thought about because you have the boots. It's a working class man. It's a working class man, but also I'm sure that wearing overalls like that and uh, and the ski mask and everything else hides who you are, but it also will probably keep your DNA inside your clothing oh yeah she was completely covered yeah. up. yeah so she heard her husband call to her to check the breaker and she yelled back that she would but instead she went into her daughter's room where both of her children were in a disguise she told the children that she had to tie them up it was a game and no matter what they heard they couldn't make a sound the children complied then cheryl went up to the master bedroom In the dark, she held a gun up to her unsuspecting husband. She knew that John Riley was out of town, and she knew he had a gun. So she used the key that was given to her so she could feed the Riley's pets and water their plants while they were away, and she retrieved a gun. Cheryl had been planning this moment since she found out her lover, I hate that word, would be out of town. So he would have an alibi for the murder. So that was her protecting John Riley. This is crazy. Mm -hmm. She had also been planning the attack. She had been working out at the gym for six months to prepare herself in case things became physical with her husband, which they did. This is, this is crazy. She just did like Jennifer Lopez enough, you know? Opposite, though. Opposite, though. Yeah. Yeah. She pointed the pistol at her husband, but something went wrong. Cheryl did not research the weapon that she had in her hand. Something she needed to do because she didn't know anything about guns. 
She had thought she found the ammunition for the weapon in Riley's house, but he had a lot of guns. So she had taken a pistol, but she put inside of it 22 caliber rifle bullets. What was the caliber gun? Was it? I'm sure it was bigger than 22. Yes. Okay. Regardless, it that's not good. No. Which caused a misfire. What um, the police theorize is there is something that could happen, like a delayed fire. From what I understand, where she pulled the trigger at first, it was aimed at his chest, but then the gun went off seconds later. And that's why it hit him in the arm, grazed his arm. Okay. And when that happened, John rushed at the person who was trying to kill him. Now, this is the sad part. The whole, well, the whole thing is, but we don't know if he ever realized the person that was trying to kill him was his own wife with whom he thought he had no problems with whom he loved. Like, we don't know if he realized that the power was still off. She was wearing a ski mask, but I, they did get into a physical altercation. So it's like he was up close with her. Did he pull the mask off? We don't know what happened, but potentially he did know that this was his wife. And then the, the fight went down into the kitchen where the gun misfired again and Cheryl was able to grab the knife, which she had ready in case this happened. She stabbed her husband, pushed him down the basement stairs, and followed behind him as he was tumbling down. And when they both reached the bottom, she stabbed him several more times. She then returned the gun to the Riley's house and then drove off in the family pickup truck, pulled over, disrobed, set the truck on fire, and in the woods, she harmed herself. She made it look as if she was sexually assaulted, beaten, and burned. Then she laid in wait for people to notice the truck. And although Cheryl thought that she had planned this murder well, she did not. She was no mastermind. She was no gone girl. In the hospital, the doctors informed detectives that the result of her physical examination were inconclusive when it came to sexual assault. And the wounds and burns she sustained were minimal and clearly self-inflicted. Wow. Those are some crazy lengths to go to, though. I, you know okay. what I mean? I know. And it's not even over. When the children were sent to the hospital, they were not then sent home with a family friend for comfort, as Cheryl was first told. They were sent to a family friend for protection. Hours after they arrived with the family, they were questioned by detectives who were trained in adolescent questioning. They both stated, even though she was wearing strange clothes and a ski mask, they knew it was their mother who had been tying them up. So that would make me believe then that if two kids knew it was their mom, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that the, fu- that the husband knew that, that it was her. I know, it's just so sad. Maybe not initially, but... You know, maybe not standing in the doorway. But While as they he were lunged, having. Well, as he lunged at her, yeah, probably. Uh, when 
she told the kids to be quiet because they were playing a game. They believed her that they were playing a game. They knew it was their mother the whole time, which is why they complied. Um, they did think it was strange and they were terrified when they heard the fighting that was happening and they were left alone for hours. They couldn't even talk to one another to comfort each other because they had been gagged. So I am sure they are fully traumatized from this experience. Yeah, how could you not be? Now, at first, the detectives thought that Cheryl and John Riley had committed this crime together. But when he came back from the conference and was very confused, they believed that he had not been home and that he had no idea what was happening. Riley must have known when that weapon was found with the jammed ammunition in it. And he knew that the only person that could have gotten in the house, taken the gun and brought it back. And that was the murder weapon was Cheryl. Right. Because she had a key. Right. And that's what clicked in his mind. And that's why he called her and said, what did you do? I kind of believe that. Right. Because. Oh, a hundred percent. Because all the, all the risk was on her, not him. And like you said, she waited for him to be out of town. Right. And he wanted to make this affair, this relationship public. He wanted them to tell their respective spouses and get divorces. But it was Cheryl who was reluctant because she didn't want to lose her children. Yeah, that's why. That's why I don't think he had any involvement because, I mean, he was willing to just kind of not be with his wife anymore, get divorced and yeah. be with her. So I don't, yeah, I guess it is because of the children that, or, you know, she didn't want to lose them that she did it, I guess. I don't know. I mean, wouldn't it just be easier just to get divorced? I mean, I know like it's, it's hard, but like, I mean, to go to the lens that you just went through. Isn't that always right? what we say? No, I know. But <laughs> they, like, I've never heard of someone go to such crazy lengths for this. Yeah. Well, when the detectives heard John Riley ask that question to the person on the other line, they knew right away he was talking to Cheryl Trover. So they hung up the phone as fast as possible. Cheryl was unable to answer John Riley's question. She had known, however, because her children had not been returned to her and the police were not questioning her anymore about her story that they were beginning to suspect her and john riley's phone call cemented that fact after riley was forced to end the call with cheryl trover she retrieved one of her friend's guns and went into their guest bathroom there she committed suicide no way yeah oh my god what the what oh my god that's so crazy I don't even know what to say. All for nothing. All for nothing. Well, I mean, I think that she was planning all of this. She thought it was going to go one way, right? She thought she, she honestly thought that night that she was going to shoot her husband in the bedroom and that was going to be the end of it. It turned into this whole thing, right? And she knew her story wasn't being believed. So whether she committed suicide because of the guilt that she felt, um, or because she knew she had been caught. She knew that John Riley was upset with her. 
or a combination of all three. I mean, she probably just didn't even want... Also, she probably didn't want to go to jail because she's probably looking at 20 years. And she was going to lose her children. Yeah. So, it's... This story is fascinating in so many ways. And, and I the reason why I looped this Gillette syndrome into the beginning is because see how it has seeped its way into this story and this second, you know, population boom that happened right around the time of this story of this seemingly perfect town, seemingly perfect family, and there's something simmering below. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it's also sad too, like like how someone can just be, be completely derailed. Like the husband had no idea, nothing was ever communicated to, to our knowledge. Yeah, and ha- to have no idea that your spouse doesn't even want to be with you, and that you have a, a an affair for four years. She's living a she's living yeah. a second life. That's scary. And when people do do these things, um, what whether they're having affairs or they're like living a, another life entirely, they unra- they unravel internally. And you see that come out in many ways, whether they become like alcoholics or, um, you know, they do something as this like escapism. And I think her escape was like planning this. This is what she became addicted to. And she had thought she had planned it perfectly. For six months. <laughs> I mean, she was going to the gym working out in case she had to like fight her husband the phone calls that she was making right and the alibi for um her for her lover lover. (laughs) you know the fact that she knew that she had a key and he had a gun and she can get it and she can easily just put the gun right back now part of me i find this to be a little interesting too was was she trying to frame him frame him because if you're gonna if your husband gets murdered and then all of a sudden you start dating your boss, right? Like, let's just say rumors are out there that you've had an affair with this man for four years. You don't think the police are going to be interested at all in John Riley and search for the weapons that he owns? I think that what you just said can be... Was her insurance policy? Well, no. I think that by doing this crime using his gun while he's away that they wouldn't even suspect him to even go to him. And that's what she was thinking. Because he was, he was far out of state. Right. So like if he's so far away and there was no way for him to commit it at all, right. Then I don't think that she, you know, like the gun wouldn't, they wouldn't have went to his house. No, I agree with what you're saying. Like it wouldn't have continued to be this domino effect. I think that John Riley and Cheryl Trover didn't know that people knew about their affair. Like she's clearly delusional and in, in thinking that she's this mastermind here. And that's the way things work because, you know, things happen within a school where like people know dynamics of things that you don't think they know because like I said, working in a high school, is same as being in one and everyone knows everything. Even if you think they don't. I'm, I'm surprised we didn't hear more from, um, the other like the wife well the next day after the suicide of cheryl trover john riley is going to step down as principal from campbell high school obviously and we don't know what happened with with him and his wife but it's interesting yeah i'm my mind was 
this is really good. I, I first I thought I had it all in the bag. Like there's two guys that cut the power, this and that. But in the back of my mind, I, I, I did find it a little weird that someone can just do all those things that led up to him and the whole other person in the doorway. Right, right. That didn't make sense to me. But I thought it was more of like two, two maybe two or three angry coworkers that made their way into the house and broke in. But right then you, you know. think, okay, it's John Riley. Then you think, okay, maybe it's his wife. Uh, maybe or maybe they planned it together, Cheryl and John, and then it's like, oh uh, yeah. my god, it was. I also thought it was weird that they went to the edge of town to drop her off there. Yeah. Because if you've already killed the husband, why? Why? What would stop you from just like killing her there? Like not to not to sound so graphic, but like just putting a bullet in her head and setting the house on uh, setting the um the car on fire. Like why just leave that person there wh- where there's a possibility that they could get out? I agree. With it's you. a loose end. And oh, if you've totally. gone to the, these lengths already to kill somebody, you would make sure that there is no loose end by the at the truck. Exactly. So, I don't know. That's why it was weird to me. But I couldn't I couldn't place anything, you know, like I couldn't put it together a hundred percent. This That's is good, a crazy one and you know, maybe an argument for that Gillette syndrome. Yeah, Gillette syndrome. All right, but before we leave, what I want to do is thank our new supporters on Patreon. So we thank you so much. You have no idea what your contributions do for us, and we appreciate you more than you know. Okay, so we want to say thank you to Kirsten Fox, Leslie Lee, Jenna Trudell upped her pledge, Lisa Gardner upped her pledge, Holly DeBase, April, Aaron Satteris, Alfredo and Frida, Kristen Minnis upped her pledge, Elizabeth Becker, Alice, BW, Jackie Rodriguez, Jessica Hayes, Christy, Allison Blancett, Margaret Moore, Maureen Petty, and Janet Carroll. Now, guys, if I mispronounce your name in any way, first, I want to apologize, and second, I am demanding that you send me an email on Patreon so I can redeem myself in our next episode because I want to make sure I pronounce your names right because that's important. All right, guys, we will see you in another two weeks. Bye. Bye, guys.